Great Father of glory, if we are to remember sacrifices, uh, we cannot go beyond worshiping and praising you for your sacrifice. Thanking you for giving your son. And thanking you, Lord Jesus Christ, for going in obedience and humbling yourself, not just to become a man, but to die as, as a criminal in the place of criminals. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your power in making us so acutely aware that we remember, even as we have a cross set up on our stage every Sunday, we remember that at the heart of our salvation is a great sacrifice. We thank you for the opportunity of worship and how worship transforms. It takes us from one place in our lives and puts us down in a different place. And that is your gift to us. We thank you that we leave the perspective of earth and enter into your story and see everything from the perspective of eternity. So worship itself is the gift, but you are the one that we worship. You are the one who captures us. Even as we sang, uh, you are our vision, you are the heart of our heart, and we truly want to be liberated to worship you freely. So thank you, great God, for that opportunity. And now as we open the word of God and reflect on your message to us, help us, great God, to be transformed uh, to worship you through the word so that there will be a transformation as our minds absorb your truth and your Holy Spirit applies it. We will not be like a, a man learning to fly an aircraft in a classroom with a book before him, but we will be flying free as you communicate your life to us. And we ask for this in Jesus' name and for your glory's sake. Amen. One of the most dreaded and humiliating experiences of my entire life was having to preach in the sermon class in seminary. You were assigned a passage, usually impossibly difficult, a gnarly scripture, and you were to present it before a pack of slathering wolves who were told to get him. And they went for your jugular vein. It was something like going through hip surgery without anesthetic. One of the comments that sticks in my mind, uh, I had preached a sermon where I got all tangled up and it was illogical and I kept shooting myself in the foot and somebody said, this sermon reminded me of the first machine gun fitted to an aircraft. Uh, that They didn't test it first, and when the pilot fired, he shot his own propeller to ribbons. <laughs> uh, and so I crashed and flamed out. But the inevitable one that was asked every week, was that me or you? 
Ah, okay, I won't worry. <laughs> the inevitable one that was asked by the professor every single week of every student was, so what? What's the relevance? People in your congregation will go to work on Blue Monday. They will be facing insurmountable difficulties through the week. They will come from family tensions. They're tired of a weekend of activity. They may have relational problems like aging parents or teenagers. You know how that works. So what? In a very real sense, we may say to the Apostle Paul, we've been with him in the book of Romans for over a year now, we may well say, well, so what? I think it's been made evident as we've gone through that there is a very practical part of uh, this book. Uh, But this morning, the so what becomes very, very evident in the scripture reading. And uh, it starts actually in Romans chapter 12. Verses chapters 1 through 11 is the doctrinal and practical side of him explaining our salvation and going into some of the deep doctrinal aspects of justification and predestination and foreknowledge and sanctification and glorification and election. And he explains all of those things. And in chapter 12, he starts with the word, therefore. Here's the point, he says. All of that should bring you to this point in your life. And the therefore is, therefore present your body as a living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So all of our mind must be renewed through Romans and now comes the moment of transformation. And this will very evidently become uh, clear as we read and reflect on the scripture this morning. In fact, we may say this, that all the doctrine in the world, if you took all the heavy tomes of theology and memorized them all, and they did not lead you to this profound moment of worship, would actually be diabolical. That doctrine that does not lead to transforming, life-changing worship as a lifestyle is actually evil. And this will be demonstrated in the life of the Apostle Paul in our scripture reading this morning. So what? Well, here's the purpose that God has in mind. He wants to take lumps of coal and form them into diamonds and let his light shine through them. So Steve Forbes said, diamonds are nothing more than chunks of coal that stuck to their jobs. Believe it or not, that valuable diamond started life as a chunk of coal. And that, dear friend, is the purpose of salvation. It is not egocentric that God might bless you. It's not just that God wants you in heaven. It's that God wants you transformed to reflect his glory. He wants his light to shine through you and to enhance and improve 
everybody around you as well as your own life circumstances. Now, Paul the Apostle was an ex- exceptionally ugly chunk of extra sooty coal. If you study his life story in the book of Acts, in uh, the letter to the Philippians and to the Galatians, you discover that he was a really nasty piece of work. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. That meant he was a legalist second to none. And as a legalist, he was imposing his legalism on everybody around him. He was a fire-breathing fanatic. He persecuted the church. In Acts chapter 7, it says he was prosecuting the early Christians. He was taking away their goods. The first Christian martyr who was named Stephen was prosecuted by the Apostle Paul. It says that he held the garments of the men who picked up the rocks that stoned Stephen to death. This is the man who wrote the book of Romans, a lump of sooty coal. If anyone deserved a lightning stroke strike from God, it was this self-righteous, vindictive, arrogant Pharisee. So if you're a lump of coal this morning, take heart. It speaks to my own coldness, for I too am just a lump of coal. Now here is this very man who was persecuting the church, writing to the church in Rome, and the transformation is astonishing. Uh, We're going to read the scripture in a moment and listen for the warmth and the selflessness and the intimacy and the love and the glory of God that shines in everything he writes. There's been a a remarkable transformation. That is one of the biggest diamonds in the world called the Star of Africa. It's now in the scepter of uh, Her Majesty the Queen in the, tower, in the tower in London. How did it become a diamond flashing with divine fire? How did the apostle, the persecutor of the church, become the apostle to the Gentiles taking the gospel to the ones that he once despised. Well, he told us in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The thing about a diamond is that an uncut diamond does not show its prized optical properties. It needs what diamond people call a brillianteering. I discovered that is an actual word that they use. I've never heard it before. What brillianteering needs is there is, first of all, the cleaving or the sawing of the diamond. That is, with a diamond saw or a laser to cut the rough diamond. The second step is bruting. Two diamonds are set onto spinning axles turning in opposite directions to grind against each other to shape each diamond into a round shape. 
It's what happens here in the sermon every week. It's what happens when we go to our fellowship groups. groups. Invite somebody not to church but to brooding. (laughs) See how well that works. And then the uncut diamond still does not show its prized optical properties. It is brilliantiered. The facets are cut into the diamond and the final polishing is performed. And this is never random. That star of Africa... The diamond cutter in Amsterdam studied it for three months. Probably 60 hours a week for three months until with his heart in his throat, he struck the blow that cut the diamond into its first shape. But it was done precisely with forethought, with premeditation, And then the facets were cut onto it with mathematical precision. Nothing was left to chance. And so it is with the lumps of coal that God graces in the gospel. There's not a thing that is left to chance. He cuts us. He brutes us. He brilliantiers us. All that we may flash with the divine fire of his light. That a lump of coal should show forth his glory. Now it reflects the light with flashes of brilliant fire. A diamond has no light of its own. You put it in a dark place and you don't even know it's there. But bring it to the light and let the light shine through it. And fire flashes within it and captures the eye without. And you say, it's glorious. It's the light and the brilliant hearing that make it happen. So we can change our definition from that of Malcolm Forbes and say this, that Christians are nothing more than chunks of coal that God persistently brilliantiers into diamonds that flash with the reflected fire of the Trinity. You may well be full of pain over some instances in your life. In fact, I'd be surprised if you didn't have those. I invite you to interpret all your pain In terms of what you've just heard, it is God brooting you and brilliantiering you according to his predetermined wisdom and counsel, cutting facets and polishing, and you are now reflecting the glory of God. As with every passage of Scripture that I preach on, uh, I read it and reread it. I read it in different translations. I study it. I look up words. I try to understand it within the context of the chapter and the book and of the entire Bible. And with this passage, as with all others, I end up thinking this is the most fabulous passage in the entire Bible. And as I read it, it was like one of those pictures. You know, they say, stare at this picture, and then suddenly something that you hadn't seen before emerges. That happened to me with this scripture. 
And I discovered that there are three sort of themes that Paul wove into the tapestry of Romans chapter 15. And in order for us to uh, follow it, and I hope this isn't a distraction to you, I've actually color-coded the reading that will be projected onto the screen. And they follow the themes of brooding and brilliantering, the flash of divine fire, and the source of the light. So for any place where there's the death of self and the promotion of Christ, that brooding process, it'll be in green. Wherever there's the flash of divine fire relating to praise and glory or worship, it'll be in blue. And wherever the source of the light is, wherever Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, or God is mentioned, uh, it will be in red. So may these themes leap out and grip you as we read this morning. And I'm going to read from chapter 1. Uh, Tom preached chapter 1 through verse uh, 13 last week, but it just fits together so well that I'm going to read the first part and actually uh, draw conclusions from the second part. So here we go, Romans chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. I don't know what happened there. There's a verse missing, but it says, uh, but he gave himself uh, to serve and took upon himself the troubles of the troubled in the world. Then verse 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order, that, in order to bring praise to God, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. 
He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not build on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard, they will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. May God bless to us uh, the reading of his holy word. I just have three conclusions. Uh, in case you were thinking, oh rats, he's just going to start preaching the sermon. <laughs> I've got three conclusions because that really was the sermon. And the first one is this, what happens for a chunk of coal to become a diamond sparkling with God's glory? Well, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit shine through the diamond that they have created, and the subjectively painful is transformed by the objectively majestic. Now, that's a real mouthful, and maybe you say, what? And you're feeling a little bit staggered. But you see, what, what happens here in Romans is that in chapter 14, and I would encourage you to listen to the CD if you missed it. Um, in chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is talking about the best way to destroy a church. And that is through internal infighting, through subjectivity. The church loses its sense of mission and instead starts fighting about the color of the paint and being legalistic about what some people think is holy and others don't. And the church ends not with a bang, but I've observed with a decades-long whimper. And in chapter 15, he says, Therefore I urge you, the first part of the chapter, accept one another as Christ accepted you. Uh, don't be insiders and outsiders, but understand that Jesus Christ came as an insider in order to reach the outsiders. And having given them all that instruction, he does this remarkable thing. He says... Don't focus on the internal subjective side of your life. Get captured by the glory of the mission to which God has called you. And by the way, you can join me in this mission. And now all of a sudden, 
you are not worried about other people who's insider, who's outsider, who's wearing the wrong clothes and the right color tie and all that sort of garbage. It doesn't matter because I'm joining, linking arms with you in order to fulfill the great majestic objective mission of God that has been assigned to me. Now, this has to happen on many levels. Uh, by the way, this, this is really an essential part of the gospel. Uh, you remember that in baptism, and we had one in the first service, uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans, as many as were baptized were baptized into Christ. In other words, they were taken from their subjective living and placed into the objective majesty of Jesus Christ. And they were raised to life with Christ. And if you take the trouble to read his letters and see how this message that Christ is our life is infused through everything he says, you will understand a little bit of what this is saying. But I can also illustrate it in a very simple and delightful way. And I think all of us uh, will grasp it with this illustration uh, our middle child was four years old and he was riding his bike on the steep slope outside of our house and he fell off and he came running into the living room screaming like a banshee and his face was sorrowed with tears and I really thought this is an emergency to end all emergencies Hospital, here we come. But as he ran into the room, his eye caught standing on the coffee table a box about a cubic foot in size that was gift-wrapped. And in a transforming instant, his face changed from the tear-stained, scrunched-up sorrow, and he dimpled with laughter, and he said, What's that? And his subjective pain had been transformed by something objectively majestic. Now, at a deep and profound level, every one of us has to make that journey of transformation for ourselves. Not just once, but every day of my life when the subjectively painful overwhelms me, and I might think more of the process of brooding than of the brilliancy that is being wrought by God's majesty, I am likely to wallow in my pain. But if I will do this and will say that God be praised, I may worship him in this moment, I will find my own heart transformed, on some occasions I will find the situation transformed because everybody runs away from somebody who's complaining. Not so. And they're attracted to people who are grateful or graceful. But irrespective of whether the circumstances change, you've still got a different approach and a different perspective and it's blazing with the majesty and glory of God. This 
journey from subjective pain to objective majesty has to happen to every church member. We all come in and we feel strange and our first months of being in any new church are what's in it for me. You are there to be served. You're looking for friends. You're weighing stuff up. But there must come the day when you are transformed into the object majesty of the church. And in that moment, something very profound happens. Instead of being welcomed, you become a welcomer. Instead of being served, you become a server. You start looking for opportunities and you understand that the church has got a mission which is majestic with the glory of God and you say, I want to be part of it. And you won't be happy in any church. I don't care where you go unless you make this journey. This also has to happen in marriages. Every person getting married initially is generally saying, what's in it for me? What can you do for me? I expect you to make me happy, now do it. And there must come the moment where you say, actually I'm not in this marriage for me. I have to see the objective majesty that marriage reflects the glory of the Trinity, a community of persons, and therefore I submit to the objective majesty of marriage. That transcends me. It transcends my partner. It puts me on the road to glory. And if you haven't done that in your marriage, I can guarantee you that your marriage will remain a miserable reflection of what it might be when it flashes with divine fire. So this is the first conclusion. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit shine through the diamond and we are drawn out of our subjective pain and we are connected with the majestic purpose of God. And the apostle does that very deliberately in Romans uh, chapter 15. The second element that we must conclude from this is that all personal preferences are set aside for the joy of ministry. Did you notice that? The very concluding verse of the passage we read the Apostle Paul said, I have been much hindered from coming to you in Rome. About 30 years of hindrance. <laughs> the word hindrance means to cut you off and box you in and not allow you freedom of direction. The sort of thing that happens on the freeway when you're just itching to overtake this car that's so slow in front of you and there's a car on the outside that's boxed you in and neither of them will get a move on. And you're thinking, if only I had a helicopter. <laughs> that's the word the Apostle Paul said, I've been hindered. Now, my dear friends, you can't get caught up in the object of man majesty of God and not have your personal life hindered. You can't have both. I'll never forget the, um, 
the first time that I had the total joy of, of ministry. I think I was about 18 years old. I was worshiping in a very small church. I think there were 20, 20 congregants there. And one day a woman presented herself in the church and she'd been battered by her abusive husband and she had a black eye and bruises all over her body. And our pastor found uh, a safe place for her to be an agricultural school about 15 miles out of town, and they had a position open for her as a secretary. It provided an apartment, an income, and she could escape these horrifying circumstances. And so the pastor roped me in, and I say roped. He roped me in to go on this, this um, mission of mercy. I, I did not really want to do it, but... Uh, he roped me in with two other men. And with a pickup, we moved this poor, battered woman to a safe place. And that evening, as we left, the sun was setting. Um, and I was on the back of the pickup. You're allowed to do that in South Africa. And the sun turned the sky to amber. I don't think you can see this other than in Africa. And as it set, there was a sprinkling of clouds across the sky, and every one of them came alight as if it had been lit on fire. And it was ringed with a white rim as that thin part of the cloud captured the light. And the glory of God shone in the sky in such a way that I almost felt like I was being drawn into the glory of God in that magnificent sunset. And something remarkable happened to me. A sense of joy, like a tidal wave, overwhelmed me. I thought my heart would burst with joy. And what I now know is that it was the Holy Spirit affirming to me that he had hindered my way in order to draw me into the fellowship of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as our call to worship said, when that happens, there is fullness of joy. And I don't know if I said it, but I certainly longed for it with all my heart to say to God, please, Lord, can I have more of this? And you know what the answer is? I will hinder your life in order that you may volunteer even more. So the journey from subject of pain to object of majesty includes you being hindered. Your personal life will be hindered. And it includes you saying, how do I help those who need help? That will come out in the scripture, which I'm going to read again in a moment. This church is full of volunteers, praise God. If anybody says, I don't know where to serve, uh, get your head out of the hole, will you? <laughs> Worship team, every Thursday, thank you for the hours you put into leading us. Set up crews. Those chairs aren't there by accident. Somebody put the chair where you're sitting there by design. At the end of the service, these chairs all have to disappear and the tables have... Somebody does that. Our Sunday school cannot care for 250 people. They need 70 volunteers. 
And so we could go on, on and on. The greeting teams, the Stephen ministers, the deacons, the youth ministries, the women's ministries. Uh, where and where and how can you be involved? There's endless opportunity. 2028 coming up. That's taken from Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. How's that for hindrance? To give his life as a ransom for many. And what we want this year is neighborhood projects. If you know a neighbor who's in need, a neighbor who perhaps could do with four people just helping out for some hours on one day, please let us know. that That's how this church will flame with God's glory. And again, the object is not that we should be thought of as this great serving church. The objective is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be made known where they are not known. That embraces your life. The apostle had it from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is in the northern parts of Greece. All of that territory, he took 30 years to cover with the gospel. You've got 30 years ahead of you to cover where you are with the acts of God and the gospel of Jesus. And I encourage you then to do that. And then finally, when this occurs, then all of life blazes with gospel light. And it leads to satisfied significance. All of life becomes ablaze with God's glory. Where are you in your life? What circumstances are there that are overwhelming to you right now? If you will worship God, it will be transforming. And the light of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they fellowship with you, will shine with radiance out of where you are right now. Not because of who you are, not because you're of great faith or anything like that, but because God has said, where I fellowship with people, there will be fullness of joy, and that is what will come across out of your circumstances. And we've had so many examples of that in this church and they continue to be that. So now let me read the passage again, and this time in a, a modern translation. And just listen for these things, and um, let your heart agree, and let it go and travel into the glory of, of God's objective purpose for your life. Here we go from the message. Those of us who are strong and able in the faith, need to step in and lend a hand to those who falter, not just do what is most convenient for us. Strength is for service, not status. Each one of us needs to look after the good of other people around us, asking ourselves, how can I help? That's exactly what Jesus did he didn't make it easy for himself by avoiding people's troubles. He waded right in and helped out. I took on the troubles of the troubled, is the way Scripture puts it. 
Even if it was written in Scripture long ago, you can be sure it's written for us. God wants the combination of His steady, constant calling and warm personal counsel in Scripture to come to characterize us, keeping us alert for whatever He will do next. May our dependably steady and warmly personable God develop maturity in in you so that you get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with us all. Then we'll be a choir, not our voices only, but our very lives singing in harmony in a stunning anthem to the God and Father of our Master Jesus. So reach out and welcome one another to God's glory. Jesus did it. Now you do it. Jesus, staying true to God's purposes, reached out in a special way to the Jewish insiders so that the old ancestral promises would come true for them. As a result, the non-Jewish outsiders have been able to experience mercy and to show appreciation to God. Just think of all the scriptures that will come true in what we do. For instance, then I'll join outsiders in a hymn sing. Oh, I'll sing to your name. And this one, outsiders and insiders, rejoice together. And one more, people of all nations, celebrate God. All colors and races, give hearty praise. Oh, may the God of green hope fill you up with joy. Fill you up with peace so that your believing lives filled with the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit will brim over with hope. Personally, I've been completely satisfied with who you are and what you are doing. You seem to me to be well-motivated and well-instructed, quite capable of guiding and advising one another. So, my dear friends, don't take my rather bold and blunt language as criticism. It's not criticism. I'm simply underlining how very much I need your help in carrying out this highly focused assignment God gave me. This priestly and gospel work of serving the spiritual needs of the non-Jewish outsiders so that they can be presented as an acceptable offering to God, made whole and holy by God's Holy Spirit. Looking back over what has been accomplished and what I have observed, I must say I am most pleased. That's in the context of Jesus. I'd even say proud, but only in that context. I have no interest in giving you a chatty account of my adventures. Only the wondrously powerful and transformingly present words and deeds of Christ in me that triggered a believing response among the outsiders. In such ways I have trailblazed a preaching of the message of Jesus all the way from Jerusalem far into the northwestern Greece. This has all been pioneer work, bringing the message only into those places where Jesus was not yet known and worshipped. My text has been those 
who were never told of him. They'll see him. Those who've never heard of him, they'll get the message. That's why it's taken me so long to finally getting around to coming to you. It would take another five years of imprisonment and assassination plots and brilliantering before he got to Rome. But he finally got there. My dear friend, you live where Christ is not known. May the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit flash divine fire into your circumstances. Let us pray. Great God, forgive my own uh, subjectivity. Forgive my own complaining. I offer it up to you with repentance and I confess it as sin. And now I ask, do what you need to do. Brute me as much as needed. Brilliantier me. But through it all, Lord God, may my fellowship be with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that the completeness of joy may be something that I experience. And I pray this for each person in this congregation to the glory of God. Amen.